the title of my message today is Darius, or Darius, Daniel, and the Den of Lions. A little alliteration there on the D's. Darius, Daniel, and the Den of Lions. Now many of you know the story of Daniel 6 as the story of Daniel and the lion's den. But not many of you know about Darius. And so actually I wanted to start, start our, a very familiar story with perhaps the most unfamiliar part of all, the story of Darius the Mede. Now, who was Darius the Mede? Well, remember, we left off in chapter 5 speaking about Darius the Mede. Notice what it says in Daniel 5, verse 30 and 31. Daniel writes, That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. He was the last king of Babylon. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Now, who was Darius the Mede? For that matter, who were the Medes? I mean, what was this people group? Well, Persia had been subject, the nation of Persia, had been subject to the Median Empire until about 550 B.C. when a young man by the name of King Cyrus of Persia defeated his uncle, King Asayagis of the Median Empire. And Cyrus was a relatively gracious leader as he conquered his uncle of the Medes. He actually appointed his uncle as governor over portions of the ever-growing new Persian Empire. In fact, so well did Cyrus incorporate the Medes and the Persian groups that the two people groups were frequently called the Medo-Persian Empire by ancient historians. And the same with modern historians today. So when you hear the, the Medo-Persian Empire, you're essentially, you're essentially looking at the Persian Empire that incorporated a group, the Median Empire, into it. And Cyrus, the Persian king, was very gracious to the Median people because of his uncle. What about this Darius? Who was Darius the Mede? Well, there's a few clues in the Scriptures as to who this man was. The first clues are these. Number one, he received his kingdom. Did you, did you catch that in Daniel 5.31? He received the kingdom. If you were to turn over to Daniel 9, chapter 1, this same Darius, it was, it was said of him that he was made king. Made king. Now, just the grammar in, in the ancient Aramaic and then the Hebrew in, in chapter 9 indicates that this Darius the Mede was not an absolute monarch who arose to power of his own might. No, that's not the case. In fact, just the opposite is the case. He, like Belshazzar before him that we learned in, in uh, Daniel 5, Darius the Mede was given the kingship. He was given rulership over the territory of Babylon. And he was given it by King Cyrus of Persia. Like Cyrus's uncle before him, this Darius must also have been a man whom Cyrus appointed as leader of the newly conquered territory of Babylon. Most historians believe him to be the person of Gubaru or Gobrias, who was one of Cyrus's top generals in the conquest of Babylon. And he was given the name Darius. And what did that name mean? It likely was simply an honorific title, uh, like Caesar was for Roman emperors. Gleason Archer writes this. He says, quote, It was highly expedient 
for Cyrus to turn over the administration of the new Babylonian conquest to a trusted lieutenant for a year or two till Cyrus could, could get himself uh, back to Babylon and assume the throne. This viceroy uh, was given the title Dariawas, which apparently means the royal one from Dara, which is Persian for king. Interesting, isn't it? So Darius, and you see another Darius later on in the Persian dynasty, this Darius the Mede, that title was really a Persian title often given to a ruler or king or governor. Some fascinating history there. Now there's one other fascinating comment about this Darius that deserves our attention. And again, so before we get to the very familiar story, I want to talk about what is unfamiliar to you. Later on in the book of Daniel, the prophet adds a seemingly insignificant comment about this Darius the Mede. Notice what he says in Daniel 9 verse 1. He writes, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now this simple statement of lineage is found in the later, more prophetic portions of Daniel. We, well, we would consider them more prophetic portions of Daniel. Anywhere from Daniel 7 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 7 to the end of the book, uh, is largely regarded as the more prophetic-oriented portions. Though, of course, there was great prophecy done earlier. But particularly the latter parts of Daniel, chapter 7 and beyond, were considered extremely prophetic. And we'll see why very soon. But as I mentioned before, in our very first study in the book of Daniel, there have been many critics of the Bible, beginning with an ancient Greek by the name of Porphyry from the late 3rd century A.D., who believed it impossible that Daniel could prophesy in this manner. Essentially, Porphyry's argument was this. Daniel's prophecy is far too detailed and far too accurate. Surely no one could speak of future events with such precision. This this argument from Porphyry upon the book of Daniel started in the late 3rd century A.D. and has continued on in different forms today. Today, uh, most, I I would say the majority of Bible scholars, uh, believe it or not, side with Porphyry. I do not. And I have, I believe, good reasons not to, and there are many conservative scholars that do not. Um, But it's a a slight majority that probably side with Porphyry on this. And, And you might be asking, well, why is this significant? Well, the significance is this. Either, either the prophecy in Daniel is prophecy by Daniel, or it's a history of the world disguised as prophecy written many, many, many years later. Porphyry argued, in fact, that the book of Daniel was written about 150 B.C. after so much of the prophecies of Daniel. And he did so because for him that made sense. You couldn't be so detailed. You couldn't be so accurate unless... It was written many, many, many years later, and what we look at as prophecy was actually just a retelling of history. So, beginning with Porphyry, many critics of the Bible prefer to date the book of Daniel very, very late, as in uh, 150 B.C., whereas more conservative scholars date it around the time of 520, 530 B.C., many years before uh, the fulfillment of these prophecies. We could speak of many reasons why Porphyry and those with him are wrong, in my opinion. But today I want to simply consider one piece of evidence, one piece of evidence for an early date of the book of Daniel. 
And this piece of evidence comes in the form of a seemingly insignificant statement. Notice again Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now, this is the first and only mention of a man named Ahasuerus, who was father of Darius the Mede. Of course, Daniel probably thought that it was proper to mention the father of a great general as Darius the Mede. And so he included it in his writings. And the Jewish people came to learn a little bit about the history of this man. He wasn't a significant man. It's the only time he's mentioned in the Bible. But Daniel thought it prudent to mention the father of this great general. In a side comment. In a superfluous, seemingly superfluous comment. Interestingly enough, not much more than 50 years later, another man of Median descent named Ahasuerus became well known among the Jews and all the ancient Near East. In fact, this later Ahasuerus became king of all of Persia. You and I know him today by the, per- by the name of King Xerxes of Persia. How many of you have heard of King Xerxes of Persia? He was a great king. And his, his original name of Median descent was Ahasuerus. And in his Persian name, he came to be known as King Xerxes. Now, why do I bring all this up? Well, King Xerxes is brought up in the Bible in which book? Anybody know which book? Esther. Now, Liz, how did you possibly know that? Her daughter's name is Esther, that's why. Uh, Very good, Liz. Nice history. Let's bring up the next slide. Esther was written sometime between 465 and 300 B.C. Now, I'm going from the conservative end of the spectrum all the way to the more liberal end of the spectrum. Conservative scholars would say, oh, 465 was Esther. More liberal scholars would say, oh, no, no, it's much much farther down, 300 maybe. Fine, let's go with the whole gamut. All right, let's go with the whole gamut of Esther. All right? Book of Esther, big, big wide margin of when it was written. Next slide. Esther 1.1 says this, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And then the book of Esther goes on to talk about King Xerxes of Persia. You notice anything? Anything stand out to you? Let's go through a timeline and see if you can pick it up. 539 B.C., on your outline, 539 B.C., the nation of Israel becomes acquainted with an Ahasuerus, father of Darius the Mede, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. About 50 years later, in 485 B.C., Israel learns of another Ahasuerus, Persian king Xerxes. In 465 to 300 B.C., the book of Esther is written, which includes a, write this down, clarification, a clarification of which Ahasuerus the book speaks of. Just look at Esther 1.1. It says, this Ahasuerus, in Esther 1.1, this Ahasuerus was the one who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So continuing on in our, stu- in our, uh, on our outline, the book of Esther is written which includes a clarification of which Ahasuerus the book speaks of. Why? Because the Jewish people within a span of about 50 years had learned of two men named 
Ahasuerus. Write that down. Two men named Ahasuerus. What's the conclusion? The conclusion is this. There is no compelling reason, none whatsoever, why the author of Esther, whether it was in 465 or all the way to 300 B.C., includes a clarification of Ahasuerus in his Esther 1.1 unless his audience was familiar with another man with the same name. And why would they be familiar with another man with the same name? Because they had read about him in the book of Daniel. Fascinating history here. There is no reason, there's no good reason why Esther, probably Mordecai was the author, why Mordecai writes in the book of Esther, he says, and let me tell you about Ahasuerus, parentheses, oh by the way, this Ahasuerus was this particular guy, as opposed to another Ahasuerus. Well, who is Mordecai referring to? Whether he's writing from 465 B.C. or 300 B.C. He's referring to another Ahasuerus in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 1, in which he's mentioned as a father of King Darius the Mede. Why do I bring this up? Liberal scholars and those who like to say that Daniel is not prophetic date the book of Daniel in 150 B.C. They date it during the Maccabean period and they say that Daniel is just was written by a pseudo-author in 150 B.C., and uh, he couldn't possibly be prophesying. It's simply a recounting of history. But if Daniel was written in 150 B.C., then how is it possible when Mordecai wrote the book of Esther that he clarified the name Ahasuerus? How is that possible? He wouldn't know. He would not have known of this obscure character unless Mordecai had access to a certain book in his library. The book of Daniel. The book of Daniel was written at an early date. We can have confidence that the book of Daniel is prophetic literature. That it was written by Daniel for the Jews during the time of Babylon and the Persian empires. That it was written in the date that Daniel indicates that it was written. Right around the time of 530 to 540 B.C. You and I can have confidence that the Word of God speaks the truth. Alright, we're going to move on from that rabbit trail. I told my wife that that rabbit trail would last a little bit. And I hope I didn't lose you. But that history is so important as we realize the significance of a minuscule comment in the Word of God that can demonstrate its veracity. Let's move on now to the book of Daniel, chapter 6. We come to the story of Daniel in the lion's den We've come to King Cyrus of Persia having conquered Babylon, having appointed Darius the Mede, the son of Ahasuerus, to oversee its affairs. And we come to chapter 6 of the book of Daniel, beginning in verse 1. It says this, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom, the kingdom now of the Medo-Persian Empire in the territory of Babylon. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be over the whole kingdom. And over these, three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself among the governors and the satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge 
against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge, charges, uh, charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Alright, so what's going on here? What's going on? There's a new king in town. King Darius has been appointed over the territory of Babylon. And as he's been appointed, he sets up 120 different regional representatives. Satraps, they're called. And over these 120 satraps, he appoints three governors, perhaps to oversee each of the 40 representatives below them. And of these governors, one of them is Daniel. And the king has in his mind, he says, I, I really like Daniel. Perhaps the king had, had met Daniel upon the conquest of Babylon and had recognized the writing on the wall for Belshazzar and had, had, had noticed that it was Daniel was the one who had interpreted that writing and had correctly predicted the coming overthrow of Babylon and the coming uh, new kingdom of Persia. And so Daniel likely caught the attention of this great king and so he was immediately appointed as governor over some of the territories. These men, according to verse 2, uh, were to give account to the king so that he would suffer no loss. Anybody know what that means? That he'd get all his taxes. That's right. they get all his taxes. All right. That king wanted to make sure that every little bit of his tax money was coming in. And so he appointed those representatives and those governors to see to it that his kingdom would suffer no loss, that he would collect every last tax. And Daniel started to rise up in the king's eye. The king started to pay attention to him. And he was thinking, notice the phrase in verse 3, uh, the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Well, this caused some commotion among the ranks, right? The representatives below, the governors above, they started talking about this Daniel and they weren't too happy with him. There was already some uh, issues of race happening in Babylon at that time. You had the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, you had the Persians, and you had the Medians. Uh, you had three different people groups all vying for power and authority within the newly conquered Babylon. And now comes along this Israelite, this Jew. They didn't have time or room to let another man enter in to the competition. So the men who were involved in Darius's regime, they wanted to kick Daniel out. After all, he was a captive. He was a slave. He shouldn't have a position in the government. Gleason Archer writes this. I don't believe it's on your outline behind me, but he says the only way to get at Daniel was to place him in a position where he had to choose between obedience to God and obedience to the government. So somehow, a new statute had to be devised that would seem merely political to Darius, but would impose a religious issue for Daniel. Let's look at what they conspired to do in verse 6. It says this, So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever! All the governors of the kingdom and the administrators and the satraps, the counselors and the advisors, having consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. This is their, this is their pitch to the king. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed 
according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. It indicates that a group of the governors and the satraps and the counselors and the advisors or a throng of these advisors in verse 6 come to Darius. That word throng there is the Aramaic word hargisu from ragos, meaning a commotion. They, they rose up together and said, we need to do this. We need to set a new law in place. And notice their words. Notice their words in verse 7. They use the word all. All. All the governors, O king. All the administrators. All the satraps. All the counselors. All the advisors. We've all consulted, O king. And we've come up with a statute that we think you should implement. What is that statute? They say, for 30 days, we want it to be law that no man can worship or pray to anyone except you, O King. No one except you. And if anyone does this, if anyone prays to anyone or worships anyone except you, Darius, we would like you to render judgment upon them in the form of throwing them into the den or the pit of lions. The king is flattered. He looks upon the, the, the throng, the commotion of, of administrators and satraps who have come in and governors, and he looks upon all of them and he's, he's counting them and realizing uh, what great power he has over them. And They want to worship him. They want to bestow honor upon him. They want everyone in the kingdom to honor Him, and to pray to Him, and to worship Him, give Him glory. The king is flattered. And in his brief moment of naivete, he signs the decree. Of course, Daniel wasn't there. His chief governor, the man he wanted to appoint as number two in all the kingdom, was not there. But Darius didn't notice that. We come to verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his window open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. Then these men, they assembled and they found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God and they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. King, king, have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, This thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Daniel gets word of the king's decree. He wasn't there at the meeting. And he hears word of this decree, the statute that's come now into law in the Medo-Persian Empire. And he's grieved by it, obviously. He's grieved because he knows he can't keep it. But inasmuch as he knows he can't keep it, he quietly retreats into his home, walks up the steps into his upper room, 
opens the doors, opens the windows toward Jerusalem, gets down on his knees and prays. Just like he did three times a day. You might be wondering a little bit about that custom. Um, today we see, uh, we see Muslims get down on their knees. Uh, and I believe it's is it seven times a day. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Five times a day, excuse me. Five times a day, a Muslim worshiper will get down on their knees, they will bow toward Mecca, and they will pray to Allah. Of course, Muhammad was a man of the 6th century, B.C., uh, excuse me, uh, A.D., and Muhammad, if you were to read the Quran, you would find great portions of it uh, are great portion, not all, but good portions of it, are copied, really, from the Old Testament. Um, not, not all portions. There's a lot that's uh, uh, left to be desired. But much of the Quran is copied from the Old Testament. And you might be wondering where they got this custom to get down on their knees five times a day and pray toward Mecca. They copied it from the ancient Israelites. They copied it from the Jews. You say, well, where did the Jews do that? Look at the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 8. I want to read it together with you. This is Solomon dedicating the temple. And this is what he said. Solomon dedicating the Jerusalem temple. He says, When they, Israel, sin against you, God, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive. Wow, that's an interesting story. Have you ever heard that before? Okay, that happens all the time in Israel, right? And Solomon's predicting this. He's prophesying as he gives this blessing, this prayer. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they are carried captive and repent and make supplication to you, saying, we've sinned, we've done wrong. And when they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul, and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, toward the city which you have chosen, and toward the temple which I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. Solomon, 400 years before 500 years, 400 years, 500 years, sorry. 500 years before the time of Daniel, Solomon predicted in his prayer of blessing upon the temple that the Israelites would be taken captive and that in their captivity they would repent and they would make supplication to God. And he instructed them through his prayer to bow down and pray before God facing the city, the temple in Jerusalem. And the Didache, which was a... uh, a later Christian document just after the time of Christ which gave instruction for early Christians on how to pray. It mentioned three times a day after the psalmist does. Morning, night, and midday. I believe that's in Psalm 55 or 56. Three times a day, the Jews in Babylon got on their knees, faced the holy city, and prayed to God. What we see now manifested in the Muslim community is nothing more than a copying or a mimicking of what the Jews did hundreds of years prior. Notice the manner in which Daniel disobeys the royal edict. Jerome writes this, and I, again, I don't have it behind you, but listen, listen carefully to these words. An early church father, not long after the time of Christ, he wrote this. He said, 
we are not to expose ourselves rashly to danger. But so far as it lies in our power, we are to avoid the plots of our enemies. And so in Daniel's case, he did not contravene the king's authority in a public square or out in the street, but rather in a private place in order that he might not neglect the commands of the one true God Almighty. Daniel did it privately. And for those of us uh, who, who love to anticipate when our government might do something that contravenes Scripture, that we might jump in front and say, I'm going to be defiant about this. That's not the pattern of Daniel. That's not the pattern of Daniel. Daniel retreated to his home, went up into his upper room, windows already opening, opened facing Jerusalem. He got down on his knees. And his conspirators, they burst through the door and caught him. They caught him. He wasn't being boisterous about it. He wasn't being obnoxious about it. He was quietly obeying the Lord God. They burst through the door and they go to the king and they say, King, this man has no regard for you. You look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 12. They burst through to Nebuchadnezzar and said, King, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have no regard for you. No regard for you. So also we see it here. Verse 14, what will be the king's response? And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. With himself. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command. And they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, He will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Why was the king displeased with himself? Because he had high regard for Daniel. High regard. He was considering him for number two in all the kingdom. Yet his appetite for kingly glory was too strong. And when all his leaders came forward with this flattering statute, he signed it. Wrongly assuming that Daniel must have been in agreement too. But he had temporarily forgotten just how committed Daniel was to his Lord. It's interesting that it says the king set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. That's fascinating, isn't it? Think about this. A, a, a monarch, a king, arguing with underlings. The king arguing with those below him and contending with them to try and free Daniel. It tells you a little bit about the nature of the Medo-Persian Empire. It's quite different than the Babylonian Empire that preceded it. In Babylon, it was Nebuchadnezzar. It was his word. It was by fiat. Nebuchadnezzar could start laws. He could overturn laws. He could kill a man. He could save a man. Nebuchadnezzar could do whatever he wanted. Here we come, fast forward uh, 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 not, too, not too many years after the time of Nebuchadnezzar, a couple decades, Medo-Persia, a lot different kind of government. In the Medo-Persian Empire, there was more authority given to the governors, to the satraps. Less authority to the king. In fact, the king did not even have the authority to overturn his own edict. 
unless there was sufficient unanimity, we will kind of learn. And then think about this. After Medo-Persia came the nation of Greece, the kingdom of Greece. And what did we get in forms of government from Greece? Democracy. A republic. You like democracy, right Tom? Alright, so we go from Nebuchadnezzar, ruled by fiat, to the Medo-Persian Empire, a little bit more of a give and take, to the Grecian Empire, not really Alexander, but, uh, but later on there was a lot of democracy, a lot of republic, and even the later Roman Empire, toward the end of the Caesars, it was ruled as a republic. It's fascinating to see the, the, the changes in governing uh, history there. The king was contending with his governors for the life of Daniel. But notice the response of the conspirators. They say, no, no, O king, know this. It is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which you establish may be changed. Darius's power was limited. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. And the king spoke to Daniel and said, Daniel, you're God. You're God whom you serve continually. He will deliver you. And the den was sealed. Sealed with, uh, it says, a signet ring. It was likely that the den was like a pit. And they would throw Daniel into the pit. Actually, the word den meant pit in Aramaic. They would throw him into the pit, down with the lions, and they would cover it with a stone. And there would be a seal uh, on the stone and he would push in his signet ring to indicate that the king had decreed that this man was to go down there. And, the, and the, the, his lords, his governors, also seal it with their rings. So Daniel, his fate is cast. But Darius says to him as he goes down into the pit, may your God save you. Darius had confidence in Daniel's God. What would happen? We come to verse 18. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke saying, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? The word musicians there in Aramaic is the word dahawan. Its meaning is actually unknown. It might have meant musicians, it might have meant food, it might have meant concubines, it might have meant uh, uh, perfumes. Whatever is meant by it, it means that the king could not be consoled. He could not be consoled when he went back to his quarters when Daniel was put into the den of lions. And, and isn't it fascinating that as he goes through that night, a, a sleepless night, he pulls himself up at the beginning of dawn and he runs to the pit. I mean, this, this, is, this is a king, a king running to see the fate of a captive. This king had high regard for Daniel. Daniel meant something to him. He says, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God been able to deliver you from the lions? Verse 21, Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever! My God sent His angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I also was found innocent before Him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury, whatever, was found on him because he believed in his God. 
can't imagine what Daniel experienced going into that den. I mean, have you guys been to the zoo? Raise your hand if you've been to the zoo. All right, you've seen the lions, right? Just imagine jumping over there. You know, falling into the pit. There was a movie, I don't know what movie it was, but there was some movie where the guy fell into the pit, some comedy. I mean, it was just hilarious to watch him run around, right? He didn't get hurt. Could you imagine being thrown into the lion's den? What terror you must have felt. What, what absolute terror Daniel must have felt going in there. And yet, the time goes by and the lions sit idly by. Mouths shut. And someone appears to Daniel. My God sent His angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before Him. I have done no wrong before you. Who was this angel? It may have been an angel of the Lord. It might have been the angel of the Lord. What we also learned is a theophany or a Christophany, the pre-incarnate Jesus. I think it likely that Jesus was the one mentioned in the fire of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. I don't think it unlikely that that same angel of the Lord in Daniel 3 might have been the angel God sent to Daniel in chapter 6. We will never know for sure this side of heaven. But one thing is for sure. God protected Daniel. He was innocent because the law was not in keeping with the law of God. He was innocent because the king's decree did not matter in light of the law of God. You know, uh, faithfulness can earn you persecution. You know what? Faithfulness can earn you persecution. In, in Iran today, um, Pastor Yusuf, not Arkani, I've, I've shown him on the screen before, I, I didn't bring his picture today, still under trial, he is now facing uh, execution by hanging for converting to Christianity. Um, in Iran, it's, uh, conversion to Christianity is punishable by death, as it is in uh, many Muslim nations. Persecution will come to those who are faithful. It will come to those who are faithful. But so will deliverance. So will deliverance. In Romans 10, 9, and 10, Paul indicates that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. And then he clarifies it. He says, what, what do I mean by that? Let me tell you, he says in verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. With the heart we believe and we're saved. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. When Paul mentioned that last part in Romans 10.10, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, he was talking about deliverance. Deliverance. The man or woman of God, faithful in persecution, who continually confesses the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord, God says they will be delivered. They will be delivered. Does that mean that every time they're going to avoid death? No. But it means that on the last day, when Jesus comes back and honors all those who have come and served and lived for Him, He will apportion off 
a special portion, a special reward for those of us who have come through life and through persecution have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. Pastor Yusuf Nadarkhani of Iran is doing that now. He's about to be executed for it. And I tell you, he will be delivered. And you might say, well, Neil, what if he dies? I still say he'll be delivered. Because God on the last day will appoint to him a portion in the kingdom of heaven unlike any other. A reward unlike any other. Because he, in, in terrible and awful and frightening circumstances, remained faithful to the Lord God. Faithfulness will earn you persecution, but it will also earn you deliverance. Daniel was innocent because the law of God was more important than the law of man. Notice verse 24. We're coming to the end. Verse 24, And the king gave the command, and they brought those men to, uh, who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the pit of lions. Them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. You say, my goodness, how cruel. How could they do this? Why? Why did Darius do this? Well, many scholars, uh, as I was reading through the, the commentaries, both ancient and new, I was reading again and again and again how Darius was displeased with them. He was displeased with them. And that's why he threw them into the pit. And I thought how unconvincing that argument is. Because he was also displeased with his edict, wasn't he? He was also displeased with the edict that they had conspired to get him to sign. And so if the only reason that Darius threw them into the lion's den was because he was displeased with them, then in my mind, he would have also reneged on that statute. He would have reneged on that edict, no matter what the cost. And he would have spared the life of Daniel. I can't be, I'm not for sure on this, and I'm not going to stick my stake in the ground on this issue, but I'm going to, I'm going to give a speculation here. I'm going to give a speculation that it seems to me that when Darius was laboring, remember the word, look at verse 13, read it again. The man, uh, excuse me, uh, 6 verse 13. Excuse me, verse. 14. And the king, when he heard these words, he was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. So what was happening right then? What was happening in verse 14? They were going through a legal dispute, weren't they? They were going back and forth. The king and the conspirators. The king and the governors. He was going back and forth legal representation all around saying, well, wait a minute, what about this? Well, we could maybe release him on this technicality. Well, well, how about, what if I did this? And he and the conspirators are bargaining back and forth. Are they not? In verse 14, they're bargaining for the life of Daniel. The conspirators want him dead. Darius wants him alive. The lawyers are about. There's no tort reform whatsoever. There's, major, uh, there's a major legal situation on our hands. You know? When the President of the United States has a question of law, whether something is legal or not, he goes to the Attorney General and he says, what do you think about this? And he goes to his other legal counselors and he says, what do you think about this? We've had disputes over the, over the centuries uh, about what is legal and what is not. And the kings and the presidents, they go and they consult the lawyers. They get good perspective. There was bargaining going back and forth in verse 14. And you know what I think happened? I think this happened. I think at the end of the day, the governors looked at the king and said, king, tell you what. Tell you what, if you put him in there, 
and he survives, you can throw us in. If you put him in there, and he survives, if he's, if he's innocent, if he's innocent, throw us in there. Heck, throw our whole family in there. That's how confident they were. That's how confident they were in their conspiracy against Daniel. It's not sufficient to say that Darius was displeased with them. If he was displeased with them, he would have ruled by fiat and saved Daniel's life. I suppose, I'm speculating, in verse 14, you see a bargaining chip taking place. And at the end of the bargain, the governor looked at Darius and said, put him in, and if he survives, you can throw us in. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Verse 24, the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions. Them and their children and their wives and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. These men had not committed a crime. They had conspired. They had schemed. They had manipulated. But they had not committed a crime worthy of death. So I would suppose that they had staked their very lives on Daniel's death in that den. And Daniel survived. Then the king, verse 25, we come to the end. Then King Darius wrote, to all peoples, he writes another decree, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for He is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lion's who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. We come to the end. And like Nebuchadnezzar before him in chapter 4, so also Darius issues a decree to all the land extolling the virtues of the God of Israel. Claiming what a great and mighty God he was. Whether Darius was saved or not, we do not know. But he surely lifted up the name of the God of Israel as a result of this great and mighty sign, this great and mighty miracle. As we close, I brought all the kids up uh, earlier and we did a little uh, exercise. We were considering the similarities between Daniel and Jesus. Well, think about this. Think of the remarkable parallels that we see between these two men. How about this? Number one, evil men plotted their death. Secondly, their conspirators appealed to their respective rulers. The, 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 the Persians and, and Medes, they appealed to Darius. The Jewish religious leaders, they appealed to Pontius Pilate. Thirdly, both Darius and Pontius Pilate were reluctant to kill them. Way, I don't know. They, they lobbied for a different kind of punishment, didn't they? Fourth, yet the crowds cried out, kill them kill them. Both in the time of Christ, around his, uh, cir- the circumstances of leading up to his death, and in the time of Daniel, with his governors and satraps all crying out, no, you need to kill him. You need to throw him in that pit. Next. Next up. Daniel was placed in a den. A pit in the earth. Jesus was placed in a tomb. And finally, 
A seal was placed upon the den of lions, so also a seal was put upon Jesus' tomb in the form of two Roman guards. How fascinating the parallels. Early church father Afarat said this in closing. He said, Daniel they cast into the pit of lions, and he was delivered, and came up out of its midst uninjured. And Jesus they sent down into the pit of the abode of the dead, and he ascended, and death had not dominion over him. At the end of the day, friends, what we read in the book of Daniel is none other than a prefigure of the person of Jesus Christ. Faithful as he was to God, Daniel was preserved. His life was preserved. And he was honored. So also our Lord and Savior, faithful until death. He said, Lord, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. But instead, he continued on to the cross, knowing the will of his Father, And on that cross He died. He was buried in a tomb, sealed with a rock, sealed with two guards, rose again, conquering death forever. We have a God who is alive, who is alive and well, whose kingdom is everlasting. And our job as we read through the stories of Scripture is to find pictures of Christ in it and to realize the hope that is in us that we have a God who is alive. And on the last day, you and I who believe in Jesus will also be alive. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank You for great stories of old. Lord, they're not legends. They're not fables. They're stories meant to inspire our faith, to lift us up. I thank You for the story of Daniel. I thank You for his faithfulness. Unswerving faithfulness, Lord. I pray that we could be men and women like Daniel. Unceasingly, committed to You, Lord, the one true God, the God who is alive. And that even the pagans, even pagan kings and principalities would recognize through our example that Jesus Christ is the Lord. We saw that with Nebuchadnezzar. We see that with Darius here in chapter 6. We pray that we would see that again and again and again with the kings and leaders of this world that they would see our example of faithfulness to You, Lord, and that they would extol Your mighty virtues. Help us to learn from these great stories of old, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.